episode 39. What is the first fruit of the Spirit? What is the earnest of the Spirit? Do these biblical phrases imply that we only have a portion of God's Spirit? Will we receive more of the Spirit at some later time? These are the questions that we will address on this episode of Bible FAQ with Kirk Van. Welcome, friends, and thank you for joining me today and tuning into this podcast. I'm Kirk Van Odeham, the host of Bible FAQ with Kirk Van, the podcast that provides brief, thoughtful, biblical answers to your questions. And I'm looking forward to this time that we have together to look to God's Word to answer uh, these important questions we have before us today. And so before we get uh, into addressing uh, these questions, I just want to remind you that you can always submit your own question to be answered on a future episode of the podcast. You can do so by going to our website, kirkvan.com. Click on the contact link and fill out the form. You can do so by emailing uh, the podcast, and that address is ask at kirkvan.com. Or finally, you can go to our Facebook page, and that Facebook page is facebook.com slash Bible FAQ with Kirk Van and send us a private message on Facebook. Any way that you decide to submit your question, we will certainly add it to our uh, list and try to answer it in a future episode. Well, let's get right into the uh, question that we have uh, here for us today. And again, the question is this, what is the first fruit of the Spirit? What is the earnest of the Spirit? Do these verses mean that we only have a portion of God's Spirit? Will we receive more of the Spirit at a later time? And this question, uh, and questions very similar to it, are questions I have been asked uh, uh, by more than one individual at more than one time. So it seems fitting uh, that we address them here on this uh, episode today. So, first let me say that in response to these uh, important questions, that it appears that there's some confusion regarding the ideas of both first fruit and earnest, uh, these terms as it pertains to certain passages about the Holy Spirit. Now, I've heard some say, uh, I've heard people say this, I've never actually read it in a, in a credible source, commentary, what have you, but I've heard some say that these verses imply that we do not have all of God's Spirit. In other words, I think the thought that they're trying to relay is we only have a portion of God's Spirit or a part of God's Spirit. As I heard one person say, we only have the gift of the Spirit, not the Spirit itself, which is really playing fast and loose with the biblical terminology there. So, you know, this line of thinking uh, certainly leads some to further speculate that perhaps all or... Uh, or excuse me, that perhaps at some point in time in the future, we will receive more of the Spirit. So we've got like a sample now, uh, but later we'll receive uh, even more of God's Spirit. So those are the types of things that I have heard people explain uh, talking about these verses, which we'll get to uh, here in a moment. So what those who say such things kind of forget is what the Bible says and how it describes our experience with the Spirit. 
Uh, just to name a few, we're baptized with the Holy Spirit. This means we're immersed in the Spirit. Scripture tells us we are filled with the Spirit, that the Spirit is poured out on us. And this is just a handful of the many phrases and descriptions. So in light of these types of biblical explanations, it does not appear that these uh, descriptions, these explanations, were intended to apply, imply any amount or quantity of God's Spirit that we receive. It seems rather that uh, either a person has received the Spirit or they have not. Uh, but even if it were the case that these verses uh, refer to some amount, so to speak, of the Spirit, it seems clear that we have as much of the Spirit as we can possibly contain, and therefore we could not receive more at some point. Now, let me say this before we address the, the passages directly. Uh, on a practical or a rational level, in other words, in terms of just plain common sense, I can certainly agree that we cannot possibly contain all of God's Spirit, for lack of a better way of stating it. Uh, as a fi finite human, uh, we could never contain the infinite, eternal Spirit of the, God, of the Almighty God. Uh, we'd be DOA, dead on arrival. We'd surely explode or implode or some terrible thing like that. The Bible tells us that God is a spirit. In other words, an essential aspect of God's essence or nature is that he is immaterial, or some use the word incorporeal. In other words, um, receiving the Holy Spirit cannot mean that we have the entirety of God's spirit in us in that sense. If that were the case, how would this make us different from God in any practical sense? And as you, as you can see, the, the very idea is quite absurd. However, it does not appear that the Bible is trying to relate such an idea of amount or quantity. It just simply tells us that we are immersed in the Spirit. We're baptized with the Spirit. We're led with the Spirit. The Spirit dwells on us. And several other passages that we won't take the time uh, to, to, to get into now. Um, so, you know, it just seems almost too preposterous on his face to even bring up the idea uh, that we could have somehow have the entirety of God's spirit, as it were, uh, in us. So we're not really provided with any greater level of detail other than to know we are totally immersed, saturated in God's spirit to the extent that we possibly can be. Now, having that as kind of uh, uh, just a, a preview of my thoughts on the matter, let's look at these passages. First, let's look at the passage pertaining to uh, first fruits of the Spirit. And this is found in Romans 8, in verses 18 and following. And, and let me read this from the King James Version. It says, For I reckon that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. For the earnest expectation of the creature waiteth for the manifestation of the sons of God. For the creature was made sub, uh, subject to vanity, not willingly, but by reason of him who hath subjected the same in hope. Because the creature itself also shall be delivered from the bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty of the children of God. Verse 22. For we know that the whole creation groaneth and travaileth in pain together until now. And not only they, but ourselves also, which have the first fruits of the Spirit. Even we ourselves groan within ourselves, 
waiting for the adoption, to wit, the redemption of our body. Now, I wanted to read this last verse, verse 23, in the greater context of the entire passage here so we can get a better understanding. And we'll, we'll unpack that a little bit here in the moment. But first, uh, what are first fruits? Uh, what does that word even mean? Well, in several Old Testament passages, first fruits refers to the first part of a harvest that is reaped or to the first portion of an animal sacrifice that is performed. And in this sense, these first fruits were always separated as an offering unto God. So for many people, their, their thought goes immediately to that definition and that concept. But this term also has other related definitions and meanings. Um, for example, according to uh, the uh, well-known Greek lexicon Lydell, Scott, and Jones, the Greek term here for first fruits, aparche, can also refer to a tax on an inheritance. It can refer to an entrance fee of various sorts. Or it can refer to the birth certificate of a free person. So that's a very technical legal term from the Greco-Roman period. And interestingly, it's this last uh, definition, the birth certificate of a free person, that the LSJ lexicon identifies as the meaning of this context of Romans 8 and 23, which totally puts a different perspective on it than the thought process that people immediately uh, instinctively go to. So what does the phrase first fruits of the spirit mean in this passage as we read it from the King James Version? Uh, what is this phrase trying to convey? Well, first we have to remember that generally there is no term-for-term -term equivalent in translating one language for another. And uh, in any language, many terms have different meanings, uh, and the intended meaning uh, must be determined from the context in which it's used. So let's look at the context of this passage, and I already read uh, a larger portion of the passage. So first, the preceding passage is verse, verses 12 through 17, which we didn't read, but I'll paraphrase. They teach us that we have received the Spirit of God. And the fact that we have received the Spirit of God as believers, uh, that means that we are God's children. We are the sons of God. And being the sons of God makes us heirs of an inheritance along with Jesus Christ. And then, it, uh, and that means if we suffer with Christ, we shall be, future tense, glorified with him. We shall be glorified with him. So that is the greater passage, the greater context. Those are the, that's the passage paraphrase right before the passage I just read. And then the passage that we are looking at, the one that I just read, contrasts our current condition with our future glory. In fact, the subtitle to this passage in most study Bibles will be something like future glory. That's what it says in the one I was using just a moment ago. And so this passage begins where the last passage left off with our current suffering. And the passage expounds on the previous passage uh, uh, in the sense that although we suffer now, there will be glorification revealed in us in the future. So to paraphrase these, these next verses and, and part of the portion I read, uh, it's basically telling us that all of creation is waiting with eager anticipation for the sons of God, the children of God, to be revealed in all their glory. And, and, 
this world in its current state, of course, is subject to death and corruption. And so all creation is waiting, uh, is eagerly waiting. And the, uh, the analogy that is given in the passage is that um, believers are waiting in a similar manner uh, to the way a woman in the midst of, of, of giving birth waits and suffers and travails and labor pains until the birth of a child. And then we come to verse 23, the last verse that I read just a moment ago. And it says, not only they, that is not only all of natural creation itself, but it says, but ourselves also. In other words, that is the church. We as believers, not only is the, all of God's creation waiting, but we as the church are also waiting. Uh, and, and it says, which have the first fruits of the spirit. Again, that's the King James Version rendering. So this same verse, verse 23, immediately compares and contrasts the first fruits of the Spirit, as it's rendered in the King James, with something else. What's it comparing or contrasting with? Well, it says, we also groan within ourselves, eagerly waiting the adoption, the redemption of our bodies. So many of the commentaries on the on this passage uh, seem to explain uh, this in pretty much the, the same way, and that is something uh, along the lines that Paul is contrasting our spiritual adoption, uh, as in verse fifteen, with the physical adoption that is yet to come, which is the subject of verse twenty three. So in other words, he is comparing spiritual redemption that we have now through receiving the Spirit with a physical redemption, which we will have at, a at the time of our glorification in the future. Indeed, the eventual complete and physical glorification of believers is clearly the theme of this passage. Verse 18 talks about the glory that shall be revealed in us, future tense. Verse 23 identifies this glory as the redemption of our physical bodies, of our redemption of our bodies. That is the deliverance of our uh, physical, natural state. Uh, verse 30, a little later on, and that concludes this, this passage uh, in this chapter, uh, reveals that our uh, calling and justification will ultimately result in our glorification. So you see glory and glorification as the repeated theme. And of course, glorification in the theological context has to do with the redemption of our physical bodies, which is still yet in the future. So please note, this passage does not say we have part of the Spirit now, but we'll receive God's Spirit in a greater measure later. No, it says nothing like that. And such an understanding really cherry-picks this verse completely out of context. Rather, what the passage does say, and again, I'll paraphrase, uh, what this is saying to us in plain English and plain language, we have received the Spirit, that makes us God's children, being God's children also means we will eventually be glorified in the future, and this glorification is the redemption or the deliverance of our physical bodies. That's the intention of this verse. So in this passage, so in this context, the King James Version phrase, fruits of the Spirit, means that receiving the Spirit is the first fruits of our inheritance, 
but there is more to our inheritance that we'll receive later, namely glorification. So now that we've identified the theme and meaning of this passage in the context uh, of what Paul is writing, let's look at the grammatical structure of Romans 8 and 23. Uh, once again, the King James Version reads, And not only they, but ourselves also, which have the first fruits of the Spirit. And then it goes on from there. So let's consider for a moment uh, the Christian Standard Bible translation. Uh, and it renders this verse, Not only that, but we ourselves who have the Spirit as the first fruits. So it seems to me that this rendering captures the intended meaning that the Holy Ghost dwelling in us is the first fruits of our inheritance to be followed up at a later time with the physical glorification of our bodies. Again, recall that the LBJ lexicon, uh, first fruits is the initial tax paid on the inheritance. It's the uh, fee for entry into the kingdom, as it were. Uh, it's our birth certificate as a spiritually free person. And, and in this context, both figuratively and uh, literally. So uh, while discussing this passage somewhat recently with a preacher friend of mine, uh, he insisted when I brought up the CSB translation, he insisted that it was a bad translation of the Greek. Of course, he had no evidence for this. It simply didn't support his preferred interpretation uh, of the passage. Now, it is true that the majority of translations render the phrase first fruits of the Spirit. And of course, this is technically correct. It just doesn't adequately and fully capture the intended meaning in modern English, if you will. So it will require additional explanation if you choose uh, to use that particular translation. But even if one insists that we must stick to the King James Version translation and others like it and read this uh, strictly and only as first fruits of the Spirit, uh, this does not pose any problem. It does not contradict the meaning I just explained. Even though this wording is a bit awkward to the modern ear, the meaning is the same as the CSB translation that I just read. Uh, it's the same indication, if you will. And we'll dig more into the Greek structure here in just a moment. But, um, you know, the CSB translation, the Christian Standard Bible, is certainly not alone. Uh, there's a well-known Bible commentary called the Jameson Fawcett Brown Bible Commentary. And the whole purpose of this commentary, the reason for which it was written by these uh, uh, scholars, is that it focuses primarily on the original languages and grammatical structures and bases a commentary based on that. And the JFB uh, commentary explains that first fruits of the Spirit, that phrase actually means, quote unquote, the Spirit as the first fruits. So, um, you know, this Christian Standard Bible was published very recently, just a few years ago in 2017. The JFB commentary was, was uh, published long ago in 1871. So at the end of the 19th century. So this is not a new idea, but it's simply the, the, um, the rendering uh, that the language scholars agree on, if you will. And it certainly doesn't have any novel theological bias attached to it or anything. It's simply what the Greek means. So this translation, the CSB that I read uh, as the um, uh, 
spirit as the first fruits, uh, it seems the best way to understand the intent of the phrase, the dynamic equivalence, if you will. Uh, in other words, uh, the, the, the translation expresses the intended thought behind the words instead of just merely translating the words as literally and directly as possible, which isn't always a good idea uh, because the two languages are completely different. And so the Greek grammatical structure is this, and you'll have to forgive me, it's been a few years since I took Greek courses, uh, but the, the Greek structure is this, tain, aparkain, to, pneumatos. And very literally, this means the first fruits, the spirit, which again, if we're going to translate it literally, it makes no sense in English. So um, we have to remember a couple of things about the Greek language. There are no prepositions in the original Greek. I mean, there are prepositions, but not in this phrase here. Uh, the noun endings dictate how the phrase should be understood. We must also remember that there is no significance to word order in the Greek language. The word endings dictate the relationship between the words, if you would. So we have to render it in the correct English based on the Greek grammar and literary context. And in this phrase that I just read in the Greek, uh, pneumatos, which is spirit, is in the genitive case. We know that from the noun ending here, pneumatos. That is the genitive. So the genitive can relate to possession. So we could translate this as in the first fruits of the spirit or better English, the spirit's first fruits. Uh, that would be an acceptable and technically correct translation for the genitive. It can also be used to indicate the genitive, uh, the source or origin. So we could translate this first fruit from the spirit. But even more specifically uh, in grammar, not just English, but in any language, or not just Greek, I should say, but in, in most languages, when two noun phrases occur side by side and one identifies the other in some different way, as in, is the case here, first fruits, and spirit. This is called apposition, apposition. And in Greek, an, a positive genitive, an apposition that includes the a genitive noun, uh, that phrase indicates an explanation, such as it could be translated, but ourselves also who have the first fruits, namely the spirit, or it could be translated, who have the first fruits, that is the spirit or could be translated, who have the first fruits, which is the spirit. So the positive genitive uh, indicates explanation. It, um, and so one more thing here, and then we'll move on. In order for the Greek phrase to indicate that we have a part or a portion of the spirit, that is the understanding by some that I explain that the word first fruits should be understood to be a part or a portion of the spirit. This phrase would need to be a partitive genitive, also known as a holative genitive. But in the Greek, it is not a partitive genitive. It is not a holative genitive. It is an appositive genitive. So the noun first fruits is in the accusative case, which signifies the direct object, not of part or portion, but of motion or time. 
So and anyway, I know I'm getting very technical here and I, excuse me for that. But um, the point I want to make here is every Greek interlinear reference that I consulted says that this phrase is in a positive genitive. So the bottom line is that the idea that Romans 8 and 23 indicates that we have a part of the spirit or a portion of the spirit cannot be supported by the Greek structure. Rather, the verse implies that the spirit is the first fruits of our inheritance or uh, as heirs with Christ, or as the CSB puts it, the spirit as the first fruits. Of course, the intended object being of our inheritance, which is the subject, uh, the theme rather, of the passage. So that's a little explanation on the first fruits. Now, very similar to this idea, and I won't take as much time to explain this because most, most of the same information applies, uh, is the idea of the earnest of the Spirit. And we find this phrase a few times in 2 Corinthians and also in the epistle to the Ephesians. Now remember, first fruits are the initial tax paid on an inheritance or the entry fee to claim the inheritance in this context. Similarly, the earnest of an inheritance in Greek is arabon. And what it means is the first installment paid towards the purchase as a pledge. Or similarly put, uh, a similar definition, a security deposit paid by a purchaser, which is forfeited if the purchase is not completed. So it's earnest money. We use that expression today in financial transactions. So examples of this, uh, this word and this phrase in the New Testament, earnest of the Spirit. First and second Corinthians one and 21 and 22, and we'll read the King James says, now he which establisheth us with you in Christ and hath anointed us as God who hath sealed us and given us the earnest of the spirit in our hearts. Similarly, second Corinthians five and five says, now he that hath wrought us for the self same thing is God who also has given us the earnest of the spirit. So once again, what some want to understand this is saying is that the earnest of the spirit means that the first payment or part or portion of the spirit that we receive, implying that there will be more later. And again, that's not supported in the context. We'll get into this. It simply cannot be the meaning. It is not the intended use of the phrase. I, I won't go into as much detail as promised as I did with the first fruits of the Spirit because I don't have to, because the explanation that I provided about the first fruits is exactly the same as applies to this phrase in, in nearly every way. Uh, for example, the Greek grammatical structure is, is identical, as are the implications of that structure. So everything I said about the positive genitive applies to these verses as well, because they are positive genitive phrases in the Greek. Uh, it is not partitive. It is not describing parts or portions of a whole. It is a positive, which can either refer to possession, origin, or sport or source, or explanation. So these verses cannot mean that God has given us a part or a portion of the Spirit, as some infer. Rather, many contemporary translations render this more accurately. And let's use 2 Corinthians 1 and 22 as an example. 
The CSB says he has put his seal on us and given us the spirit in our hearts as a down payment. So the spirit is the down payment. Similarly, the ESV, who has also put his seal on us and given us his spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. The spirit is the guarantee. The Net Bible, the NET, who also sealed us and gave us the spirit in our hearts as a down payment. The NIV, he has set on uh, his seal of ownership on us and has put his spirit in our hearts as a deposit guaranteeing what is to come. And the New King James Version, who also has sealed us and given us the spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. And several other translations agree. So these all identify that the spirit is the earnest. The spirit is the down payment. The spirit is the guarantee. Not that we have an earnest of the spirit, a payment of the spirit, uh, 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 or anything like that, so to speak. And also, in se- I won't take the time to read them all, but the, the passage we read from 2 Corinthians 5 and 5, all the translations I read give the similar translations to the one I just read from 2 Corinthians 1 and 22. They're, they're virtually identical in that, that sense. Uh, they, they, they phrase them in the exact same manner. But again, even if one insists on sticking to the King James translation and insists that we must accurately render this phrase earnest of the spirit, once again, this doesn't really pose any problem. As long as we remember that grammatically it is not partitive, it is it a positive? And even though the wording of the archaic King James language is a bit awkward to the modern ear, the meaning is still the same as these temporary, uh, these contemporary translations indicate to us. Uh, so there's nothing wrong with the King James translation. It's not incorrect. Because it's not a modern English translation, it just requires a bit of an explanation for us to understand the intended meaning. And so to underscore this, and we're almost done, ready to wrap this up here, uh, to underscore this, we can let Scripture interpret itself. In this case of the phrase, the uh, 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 earnest of the Spirit. So compare these two verses that we just read in, in, in 2 Corinthians with a passage in Ephesians that expounds on the same theme that Paul is talking about in 2 Corinthians. Uh, so Ephesians 1, uh, verses 12 through 14, and I'll read the King James here again. It says this, that we should be the praise of his glory who first trusted in Christ, in whom ye also trusted after that ye heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom, in whom also, after that ye believed, you were sealed with that Holy Spirit of promise, which is the earnest of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession unto the praise of his glory. So here it says very clearly, it uses the same phrase again, you were sealed with the spirit of promise, which is the earnest, uh, the Holy Spirit of promise, which is the earnest of our inheritance. So here it's talking about the earnest of the spirit again, but it's telling us plainly, even in the King James Version, that the Holy Spirit 
is the earnest of our inheritance. So perhaps I should have led with that. Let scripture interpret scripture. If you're confused about what this phrase, first fruits of the spirit means, if we're confused about what this phrase, um, earnest of the spirit means, let's just let the Bible interpret it. And, and it says here uh, very plainly, you were sealed with that Holy Spirit of promise, which is the earnest of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession, going back to the passage in Romans 8, uh, until the glorification occurs. So spiritual transformation first, spiritual redemption first, which is the guarantee, the promise, the sign that we will later be granted physical redemption, physical uh, glorification uh, to complete the promise uh, which has, God has given us. And that is what the earnest of the Spirit means. Uh, this passage clearly demonstrates from Ephesians 1 uh, that the Holy Spirit is the earnest of our inheritance, that it is the down payment, the deposit, the guarantee uh, that is what earnest of the Spirit means. So in conclusion, uh, to wrap up this question, I hope this clarifies the meaning of these verses that speak of the first fruits of the Spirit and the earnest of the Spirit. I hope I have convinced you that it doesn't mean we have a part or a portion of the Spirit that's not possible in the Greek structure. Uh, it doesn't, certainly does not mean that we'll receive more of the Spirit at some other time as if there were more to have uh, in, in some, as if you could somehow divide God's Spirit or, or portion it out or just sprinkle a little bit or something of that nature. Um, it uh, doesn't mean any of those things. Uh, once again, in, when we put these phrases into modern English, or Romans 8 and 23 properly understood means the spirit as the first fruits. Uh, the first fruits refers to the tax and the inheritance, the entrance fee, the birth certificate of a free person. Second Corinthians 5 and 5, among the other verses that we discussed, properly understood means the spirit as the earnest of our inheritance. Earnest refers to the down payment or the pledge, the security deposit or the guarantee. So the point is this, God baptizes us with his spirit for several reasons. And not the least of these reasons is that it serves as a promise of the full redemption of believers, which will be consummated upon the glorification of our physical bodies, which is at a time yet to come. But I'm glad we have that promise, and I know you are too. Well, that's all the time that we'll take for this uh, episode today. So uh, until we meet again, the Lord bless thee and keep thee. The Lord make his face to shine upon thee and be gracious unto thee. The Lord lift up his countenance upon thee and give thee peace. Thank you so much for tuning in. Enjoy this time. God bless you. Farewell for now.